with rocket attacks and violence and tensions escalating in Israel. All of us are wondering, what's going on? We thought this was behind us. And what can we do about it? This is the topic that we will be addressing. 3,333 years later, since Sinai, why is Israel still burning? And what can you and I do about it? Please join me. Hi, this is Simon Jacobson, and we will be speaking about 3,330 years later from Sinai. Why is Israel still burning? This program is dedicated by Anonymous in honor of Rabbi Simon Jacobson. In the wake of the Miron tragedy, where 45 beautiful people, men, children, teenagers, were ripped away from us in such a horrible way. And now, in the last few days, a barrage of rocket attacks, unprovoked, violence, tensions, and we're back to Middle East conflict in Israel. When I say unprovoked, I'm sure some people say there were certain provocations. But still, once you see these wanton attacks, not against a particular target, against civilians, and in civilian territories, what's going to be? Many of us thought this is already behind us. Yes, we knew that peace has not been achieved totally. But... There were promising signs, the peace accords with the UAE and other Arab countries. And above all, is there something you and I and all of us can do about this? So I want to divide this this, uh, talk into two parts. There's short-term and there's long-term. Like it is... With any challenge, there are short-term remedies and there's the bigger picture. Now, of course, if you can solve something with short-term with a Band-Aid, with a painkiller, great. But here we know these are festering issues that go back history. They go back thousands of years. It's true the birth of Islam was not thousands of years ago. But not yet the challenges all the way back into the home of Abraham Abraham, our forefather, yes, our patriarch, he had two sons, Yishmael and Isaac, and they were at war with each other. And they would become the progenitors, they were the ancestors of, respectively, the Arab and ultimately the Muslim world. And the, that's Yishmael and Isaac, the father and ancestor of the Jewish world. So we're talking now almost 4,000 years ago. 
That is why it's critical to understand also the bigger picture. And that should inform the smaller picture. So I'm going to begin with the bigger picture. Not because I don't think short term should begin, because we need to deal with things right now immediately, but I will get to that. So let me first dedicate some words to that bigger picture. When you see a conflict going on for not five years, not 10 years, not 100 years, but thousands of years, you have to ask yourself, what lies at the root of this? Because if you put out a fire here and a fire there, it won't resolve it. And you see how deep-seated it is. In this particular situation this, this, this week, it came down to religious days. For the Jews, the Jerusalem day. For the Muslims, their holiest day during Ramadan. People going to their respective houses of worship, encountering each other. And of course, in moments like that, that's when explosions happen often. So what lies at the root of it? Let us say Islam and Judaism have two different philosophies. Even though the truth is, if you really study them both, they have a lot more in common than people may know. But even if there are differences, why does it have to lead to such type of violence? We live in a modern world, quote-unquote. We can't have different approaches and live in harmony. So clearly it's very primal. It goes back. For the Jews, Israel is not a country that was founded in 1948. That's when the UN recognized it as a state. It goes back to the Bible. You go back to the Bible, you read the earliest verses in Genesis that Israel is the state, the country that God gives Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Jews were in bondage in Egypt, in slavery for hundreds of years, and then told, you're going to the promised land, the holy land, these are biblical verses. These are un- indisputable, not modern literature. goes back thousands of years. Long before Christianity and Islam were even born. And they accepted, whether they called the Old Testament or the Bible or however it was defined, that Abraham is a prophet and Moses is a prophet. The promised land. The promise to the Jewish people. So for the Jews, it's very clearly not something that is just negligible and say, you know what, let's move to Uganda or let's move to another island or somewhere. They're, they're in, in, inextricably bound, intrinsically bound with this land itself. Especially on a theological level, when you understand the significance, the bond of the Jewish people to the Jewish land, to the promised land, the holy land, with God and with Torah. So this is a triad the land, the Torah, the people connected with God. The first Rashi, the first commentary on the beginning of the Bible in Genesis quotes the Medrash that says, why is the Torah, why does the Bible begin that God created heaven and earth? Why does it begin with a mitzvah, with a good deed, with a commandment, which is the purpose of the Torah? So it said because there will be a time where people will cry out and say to the Jews, you're, you're thieves. You stole our land. Literally, that's what it says. Rashi, a commentator from 10th century, talking about 9th century, talking about over 1,000 years ago. Citing a medrash that goes back almost 2,000 years ago. That they'll say, you're, th- you're thieves. So God said, here's the answer. I created heaven and earth. 
and I chose to give a piece of it to you, the Jewish people. And the rest of the world I gave to the rest of the nations. So they have plenty of land. So I can elaborate, but that is in a nutshell why Israel is so deep. It's important to state. Some people don't forget about this critical component. From the Muslim point of view, or the Arab slash Muslim point of view, and I'll try to present it, though I'm Jewish, clearly, and i probably be biased, but still, for them it's also very deep-rooted because it goes back to their roots of their religion, of Muhammad and Islam itself. And for Islam, it was about them being chosen, following the fact that in some ideological circles in, in Islam will say, following the fact that the Jews and the Christians did not succeed in fulfilling God's plan that they are. So therefore, now they, once the Ottoman Empire and once Islam conquered essentially the Middle East, going all the way from Saudi Arabia or even more, more east than that, all the way to countries in Africa, they see it as sacrilegious that anyone else should have control over this land which is why mosques are built on all the holy sites, both Christian sites, like Bethlehem, and Jewish sites, Jerusalem. Because for them it's a sign that's what God wants. So the fact that the Jews, the Jewish people were given this part of the land as a state and recognized is considered to be not just you take a little piece of land away from us. It's considered a religious abomination. Now all Muslims feel the same passion for it, but enough. And if you read verses in the Quran, the Jews are seen often in a bad light. You could even call it anti-Semitic. So for many Muslims, I'm not saying for all, for many, the Jews controlling this part of the world is for them sacrilegious. Yes, it's going against God's will, and therefore it's a holy war. So when you have pitting these two types of ideologies, it's clear that this is not so simple. You can't just say, okay, let's swap something because it's not about land. Because the logical argument can be, okay, there are 8 million Jews living in a very sliver, a small sliver of land that's the size of New Jersey. The Arab Muslim, Arab, the Arab Muslim world has, compared to that, 100 times more land. If you go through all the countries, of Jordan and Syria and Lebanon and Egypt, not even counting Sudan, Saudi Arabia and all the other Arab Emirates, Iraq, etc., Turkey, far more land than Israel. So you can't allow the Jews to have a little piece of land. But as I said, if it's ideological and theological and religious, it takes on a different, a different meaning. That's why it's not about negotiation. That's why the Western world who says, you know what? In business, we negotiate. You give something, you give something, and, and, we, make, and we make come to peace. It doesn't work, as we see. Now this itself, you can ask, why, is there, why are they being pitted against each other? Why did Muhammad feel that he had to turn against the Jews? Just as the Christians felt they had to turn against the Jews. Was it because if the Jews didn't accept Islam or Christianity, that was considered for them like the biggest betrayal? Because they're claiming that they're coming and following the Jewish prophets and the Jews are rejecting them? Is it because the Jews came first and there's a certain competition? All these may be part of the factors, but I will suggest something even furthermore. Because I go back now, let's go back before the times of the birth of Christianity and Islam. 
You go back to the house of Abraham. Abraham, the first pioneer who introduced monotheism to the world. Him and his wife, Sarah. They could not have children. So Abraham is a child with Hagar. That child's name is Yishmael. Ishmael, which means God will listen. It's a divine name. It's a divine name. Son of Abraham. He carries Abraham's genes. So he grew up with Abraham's philosophies and ideologies. However, he was, as the, as the Bible says, he was an aggressive person. A wild person. Which can even mean sometimes in a positive way. He's very passionate. You see later when Hagar and Ishmael are banished, they pray. Some say that's the beginning of the fact that the Muslims pray five times a day. They prayed to God, but it was not a disciplined passion. Isaac, on the other hand, especially as the mystics explain it, was captured discipline. Abraham was chesed, was kindness, love, love to people and love to God. But when love is not countered with balance, balanced with discipline, it can be overwhelming, to say the least, or worse. So Yishmael and Yitzchak and Isaac reflected two different archetypes in the relationship with God. For Isaac, it was far more of a disciplined experience. Yishmael, it was a far more of a loving experience without necessarily all the necessary boundaries. But even Isaac is not a complete picture. Because Isaac, too much discipline is also not a balance. You need love and discipline. Comes third stage. Isaac has also two children. Twins. Esau, who would be the progenitor and the ancestor. His grandson would be called Raimi, Rome. The ancestor of the Roman, Western, Christian world. What is sometimes called in Talmudic literature, Edom, Malchus Edom. Which begins with the, the, that Roman Empire, but it traces back to Esau, who actually becomes a son-in-law of Yishmael, just to show you how the plot thickens. And his twin brother, Jacob. Jacob, of course, would become the father of the Jewish people, of the tribes. Esau, as I just said, is the ancestor of essentially the Western Roman Christian world. So here we have three characters. Yishmael, father and ancestor of the Arab Muslim world, essentially through the Middle East mostly. You have Isaac and Jacob, father and ancestor of the Jewish world. And you have Esau, father and ancestor of the Western Christian world, Roman world. It was originating in the Roman Empire. What does this tell you? Jacob was the, the balance, the third, the third of the forefathers. He brought perfect harmony, what the Kabbalists call chesed gvurit teferis. Some of you may be familiar with this, some through my book, I'm sorry, the book of the spiritual guide to counting the Omer. Chesed is love, gvurit is discipline, but then you need the harmony, the synthesis of the two. And that's teferit, the third. So one is a very powerful force, love, two, so you have two different approaches. Two different approaches could also lead to conflict and even divisiveness and war, which we actually had. And then you have Jacob, man of peace, to integrate them all. Now, when you look at history, 
continue the story, then there were three characters, three individuals, three personalities. But they would become, as I said, fathers of great empires. Essentially, it explains the battles that would later emerge between the Jewish people, the Christians and the Jews, and then the Muslims and the Christians and the Jews. Now this is in a nutshell. If you want more on this topic, I wrote about it extensively right after 9-11, because these topics came up then, when America was attacked, New York, Washington. So you can go to MeaningfulLife.com and find a lot more material with sources. It's a very intriguing and very powerful topic, and one that is critical to really understanding the roots. So when it comes down to it, you have here a conflict of ideologies, which would later manifest in the different major three religions that we're talking about. I don't want to talk about the Eastern religions. It's another discussion, part of it as well. Abraham is connected to as well. Some of his children went to the East and brought the philosophies that Abraham taught. But let's focus on this. So when you look at it this way, you look at many texts, which I cite in these articles that you can find at MeaningfulLife.com. Just type in Islam, Judaism, Christianity, 9-11, conflicts, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, and you'll find a lot of material on this. You see the patterns emerging, and then everything becomes much clearer. This doesn't mean we resolve the issue. It just means we understand it better. But here's one more critical component which explains the title of this class. 3,330 years ago was a major event, maybe the biggest event in all of history, called Sinai, the revelation at Sinai. The Bible tells us that when the Jewish people left Egypt, 50 days later, they arrived at Sinai and received, well, they arrived at Sinai 43 days later, but they came to Sinai, and on the 50th day, they received the Torah. That was when the Bible was actually given to them according to the Bible, by God. The mandate. The mandate that would define their destiny and their mission in life, as well as, as I mentioned, Christianity and Islam, which all took their ideas from there. And we're told a fascinating episode. So you see how this is relevant. That God comes first to the children of Yishmael and says, I'd like to offer you my Torah. Yishmael, your grandfather, your great-grandfather is a son of Abraham. They looked into it and they said, there are certain things we can't accept. They were not ready. Same thing, the children of Esau. They also rejected it for the same reason. Certain laws, they looked at the Ten Commandments, we can't accept. And when it came to the Jewish people, the Jews said, yes, we'll accept it all. Nasa v'nishma. We'll do and then we'll, under- then we'll understand and learn. Now, What's the difference? Why did they accept that they did not? Remember, the Jews were coming from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they had, I would say, a more mature approach to it all, a balanced approach. The teferis, that third key of element, to keep everything in balance, you need to have three. Like you see the structure of a human being, right, left, center. You need the centrifugal force. Love, discipline, and beauty, compassion. The three. Three keeps the balance, especially when you have religious passions. How do you make sure to check them? And it shouldn't become zealotry and aggression in the name of religion. Holy wars in the name of religion. As we see the crusaders fought and we see the Muslims fought. So you need to have the discipline, the humility. 
But then you need the combination because you also don't want the discipline to be so strong that you lose your passion. So you need the channeling of it all. And that's what the Jewish people were ready for. And that was what Matan Torah was in the third month. The, the counting of the Bible starts, the first month starts with the month of Nisan when the Jews left Egypt. And the third month is Sivan, the month of when the Torah was given. And the Talmud indeed says it's all connected to three. That in the third month, on the third day, the Torah of three, which is Tanakh, Torah Nevi'im, the Bible, the prophets, and the writings, were given to a people of three, priests, Levites, and Israelites, with a bunch of other number threes. But you know something? Ask the Zohar, so why then was God offered the Torah to, when he knew that they would reject it? No, because he knew he was preparing them that they will ultimately accept its principles. Christianity first, the children of Esau first, so he presented to them with the birth of Christianity, and then the children of Yishmael with the birth of Islam. So what do you see? You see how history connecting the dots. And now we're 3,333 years later. Three, 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 three. Again, the number three. Four threes. Signifying the power of what the Torah came to do. What was this power in one sentence? And Maimonides writes, the whole Torah was, came to create peace and harmony in this world. What's peace and harmony? Shalom. It's not just the absence of war. It's integration. Is the integration of all forces into harmony. Marrying heaven and earth, spirit and matter, form and function, the inner and the outer, matter and spirit, matter and energy. That we create the total fusion of a material world which can go and wander off the reservation and lose sense of its higher purpose and mission in this world and higher values. Integrate it. We're not talking about rejecting the world. We're not talking about total indulgence in the world. So how do you find the balance? Number three, yet again. That you have spiritual values, but they're integrated into a material life. You engage in this world, but you remember that you're something above the world. Your feet are firmly, firmly, your feet are firmly planted on the ground, but your head is in the clouds. Balance. And when there's lack of balance, there's tension. And when there's tension, there's ultimately conflict and war. So with the risk of oversimplifying things, because I'm not over, trying to oversimplify, because once you understand all the nuances, it's complex. That's when all, all conflict originates, when you're lacking the balance. And so all of us need the balance. The Jews, the Christians, the Muslims, every person on this earth. Even if you don't consider yourself religious or you don't even have faith, you need balance. You need a balanced life. You need to bring all these aspects into a life that is not just overly materialistic or overly spiritual and forgetting about the material world. You need balance. That, my friends, is the key story behind it all. Now, I understand when people are being killed, and civilians and attacks and these tensions, who's thinking about these theological things of balance? I'm going to get up there and talk about balance. But it's important to know the root. Every problem has a root. And yes, it's going to come long term, it's going to require a revolution in that whole region and the whole world for that matter. Because if you read some of the writings of, of uh, Katab and others, 
Some consider him and a few others as the fathers of radical Islam. The people who were like the teachers and the mentors of, of bin Laden and others. They talk about the over-materialistic indulgence of the Western world and that it's our divine mission, the Muslims, to not allow that materialism to conquer us, but to bring our spirituality there to the point of even violent war, jihad. So that's an extreme the other way around, completely not tolerating any materialism. Then, of course, there's approaches that say, like a, let's say a Calvinistic approach, which for zealots is really completely sacrilegious, that the, the, ethic, the Protestant work ethic, we live in this world and fine, indulge in it, but make sure to remain moral and with values. And that too is sometimes lacking the spirituality. So again, you need balance. That is the thing that is the driving force. And this needs to be taught to every man, woman, and child, starting from children, in the Muslim schools, in all schools for that matter. So when you see something that you don't agree with, violence is not the approach. Look at how Abraham approached infidels. You pray for them, you inspire them, you educate them, you teach them. Again, balance. No one's asking you to compromise your values. But how you present them have to be done in that balanced fashion. And unfortunately, when there's lack of that, we have the wars, the religious wars throughout history, and we have the conflagrations and other tensions and violence that rises again and again, in these, especially in this region. The Western world, many don't understand it because they can't understand what was, what's, why is there a religious war in the first place especially people who feel they're enlightened and became more scientific. Why should people have such passions? They sound primitive. But you're not going to extinguish that because you don't understand it. Because there's a lot of power to that and a lot of beauty if it's harnessed. Passion is a beautiful thing, but if it's directed toward violence and intolerance to the point of killing your enemy or killing, considering someone your enemy and then killing them, why is Abraham's Mandate, Abraham's edicts, Abraham's very essence was all about love. So it's the balance that's required. So let me now carry it over to short term. So short term, let's be very practical. I'm going to be very practical, the exact opposite. Short term, the first thing is like this. Innocent people can never be attacked, period. And you do whatever it takes to defend that. You want to talk, we'll talk with you. There's no attacking innocent civilians, period. So we're not even getting into theology right now. That's not acceptable. It's a non-starter. That's a declaration of war. Now, yes, people have, we've gone into a lull, and we think there is no declaration of war. But there are people who are, not just this week or last week, not just when there's an attack, who are constantly feel that the Jewish people, or the Jewish state in Israel is their enemy. It's a declaration of war. This war has never been ended. There's never been a peace treaty that has been upheld. So it's an illusion to think that someone's not at war with you. When someone's at war, you have to be in a war mode. Now, thank God, Israel has a strong, a strong defense system and understands that. So the first thing is strength. You don't deal with violence but through weakness and negotiations. You, deal, you have to negotiate with strength and, and respond with strength, which is why I would commend do everything possible to, to remove those that are attacking civilians. Now, I understand people will say, one second, isn't Israel also discriminating against the Arab world? Well, 
It's already been pointed out that this myth and this PR campaign of painting Israel as apartheid, God forbid, or other type of racism is simply incorrect. Look at the laws of Israel. Look who sits in the courts, who has a right to vote, how many Arabs are in the Knesset itself. There's no question that if the Arab and Muslim world would want to make peace, real peace, the Jews would be the first to accept. The Jews were never the ones that were the aggressive ones. It was always a defensive war in 1948, in 1956, in 1967, the Yom Kippur War, 1973, and now, and all the other intifadas and so on. So that's number one, strength. Number two, you don't give land for peace. It's peace for peace. You want to talk about peace, we're ready to make that peace. But it has to be done soberly and not irrationally. The good news is that the, the peace with the Arab countries around Israel that have happened the last year, well, no doubt, those are historical events because for the first time in history, a real peace is being made between countries and ideologies that were once, as I said, at, at odds with each other, worse than odds, at each other's throats. Will that spill over? Yes, if the Arab and Muslim world comes together strongly and says, we will not tolerate this type of behavior, everything has to be done in a peaceful way, I have no doubt what will happen in that region. But how does this all translate into us? Because that's on the ground what Israel needs to do in addressing all these issues. What does it mean to us? So 3333 has the answer as well. It's a, it's a, fun, a fundamental principle in general thought, but especially Jewish thought and mystical thought, microcosm, macrocosm. If there's any tension, any conflict in the world, somewhere subtly there's a conflict and tension within each, other, within each one of us, which is why we are looked at as a small universe. You change something in yourself, in some way it has a ripple effect on the entire world. Now you may say, that sounds like mumbo-jumbo. Well, you know what? Today we have a concept of a butterfly effect. A butterfly flutters, flutters its wings in Kansas, and it can create a typhoon in Singapore. And especially on the quantum level of, of quantum mechanics and physics, we understand that it's not, about, it's not about time and space as we usually would understand it. You can do one thing here and it has immediate effect all the billions of miles away, let alone millions of miles away. Look at technology. Technology, whether you understand it or not, suddenly transcends the divisions of time and space where you can be right now on your smartphone and talk to anyone thousands of miles away, see them simultaneously. So the idea that a small, tiny person can make a difference is completely scientific today. So as such, we need to introduce the 3333 in our lives. What each one of us can do is to find that three, create peace and harmony between the tensions and conflicts of your own voices. Synchronize, integrate your material life with your spiritual life, which means look at your material life and spiritualize it. When you eat a piece, a piece of food, drink, go to work, even walk the street, your entertainment, whatever it may be, introduce spirituality into it. Do it for the purpose of helping another. 
Be kind to anyone you meet. Send out through technology. Send out daily or weekly messages to, to, to each other. And even to strangers. Three. Bring together your love, your discipline into a beautiful harmony. I've recently been speaking about submerging ourselves into our spiritual, into your spiritual spa. Spa. S-P-A. So just like a body gets soothed and calmed and relaxed in a spa, a soul also needs a spa. What is the S-P-A? Another three. Study, prayer, action. The three pillars upon which the world stands and also the microcosm, your personal world stands. Cognitive conditioning, emotional conditioning, and behavioral conditioning. So study is taking something, start studying something new. Put your mind in the right place. Create a good mindset. Prayer is an emotional conditioning. It's emotional work. Emoting. It could be a religious prayer. It could be a poem. It could be something that, that your heart speaks out. First to your soul and to God. However you define God. And finally, behavioral, action-based. Do a good deed. Give charity. Help another. Reach out. Visit the sick. Help a special child. Help everyone. Do this on a daily basis and you begin to align your three in the proper way. And when you can create that number three, that balance, that harmony, the harmony within diversity, that spills over. And yes, that spiritual activity, that spiritual spa has a butterfly effect, a ripple effect all the way to the Middle East to Israel and other places. Now, of course, if you can do something directly, either politically or financially or another way with your influence to help the situation, by all means. Not, I'm speaking about things that some of us don't have the power to do. Wherever you may be sitting right now in the world, you can create that harmony. This, of course, includes speaking to people. If you know anyone, whether it's someone Jewish or someone Christian or someone Muslim or someone, none of the above, create a conversation about this topic. How do we create this harmony? This is not about pulling rank. It's not saying that one is better than the other. We all need this balance. We all need Tiferes Zemat and Torah, which is the Sinai triad. It was given for all of us. It was offered to the children of Yishmael, to Esav, and ultimately they would embrace it to some extent. But we all need to embrace it and bring a world where you'll have the number three. What is that three? that will have a total fusion, the marriage of heaven and earth, of body and soul, of spirit and matter. And we can all do something about it. It's only up to you. The next move is yours. As I write in Toward a Meaningful Life at the end of the chapter on unity, where does heaven meet earth? Right at your doorstep. Right in your heart, right in your soul. Let's do our part. May God bless that region and all of us with total peace and harmony. We're not talking about eliminating or annihilating anyone. We're talking about finding the true harmony within diversity and then we can march into a world that will celebrate the ultimate harmony of the grand cosmic symphony where each of us are indispensable musical notes in one large composition. May that be now. 
Thank you. This has been Simon Jacobson, MeaningfulLife.com. For more information and material, please send us your suggestions, thoughts, feedback. Share with others. Share this message. That's the first thing we all can do. Share it. And it's so easy to share today. Just press a few buttons. And may we merit that special day where all peoples in this world will find that harmony. All nations under one God. Harmony within diversity. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at MeaningfulLife.com donate.